One of the goals we are dreaming up in 2023 is to bring the rhythms of the seasons to a wider audience. We're planning to enter the show for awards consideration. We're approaching podcast platforms to host us, and we're looking for paid partnerships that we can feel good about. Until then, we're still very much a mom-and-pop operation. I'm the pop, Anne is the mom, Ruby is the kid, Double Batch Daddy are my brothers from another mother. In order to keep up with the expenses of bringing this podcast to you, we're asking you to pretend you're here in the lounge with us and that we're passing a hat, or that you bought a ticket to see us all perform live. What would you pay for that ticket? Ten bucks? Twenty-five? You'd certainly expect the VIP treatment with a hundred-dollar ticket, right? Whatever you can afford would be greatly appreciated and will go a long way to keeping the rhythms of the seasons coming to you season in and season out. Head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. Hit the donate button and share whatever you can. Thanks in advance for your generosity. Hey there. Welcome to April. They say March comes in like a lion and goes out like a lamb. April comes in like a lamb. Then it becomes a cougar for a couple of days before it changes into a cute little puppy. Then it's a meerkat for a week or so, a porcupine for a day and a half, and it finishes out like a wild boar. Whatever shape your April's in right now, we invite you to join us for the next hour or so for a collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. John Ballinger and Double Batch Daddy celebrate the season cycle in song. Ruby Farley and I share a story in honor of Earth Day that explores some fascinating ways humans facing climate change might choose to change themselves. We have three middle schoolers joining us to share their perspectives in our new segment called The Seasons of Life. And later on, we'll consider following the April Fool to see what they can teach us about taking risks. So, here we are. Everywhere I look, I see signs of spring. My orange and lemon trees are in full bloom. The Carolina cherry hedges that surround our front yard are dropping actual deep blue cherries all over the sidewalk, temporarily staining it to look like a stale blueberry muffin. The evening air is alive with the sweet smell of night-blooming jasmine. The days are outperforming the evenings with sunrise coming today at 6.30 and setting at 7.25. That's plenty of time to step outside to grill up your favorite meat alongside carrots, asparagus, and onions. Maybe with a little strawberries and cream for dessert. But for me, there's one thing that signals the return of spring like no other. Baseball. And in honor of the return of this great and glorious game, so great and so glorious that 100 years of owners wringing every possible dollar out of us can't possibly taint it completely, I want to share with you a monologue from Richard Greenberg's Tony Award-winning play, Take Me Out, which just closed its Broadway revival in February. I have come with no little excitement to understand that baseball is a perfect metaphor for hope in a democratic society. It has to do with the rules of play. 
It has to do with the mode of enforcement of these rules. It has to do with certain nuances and grace notes of the game. First, it's the remarkable symmetry of everything. All those threes and multiples of three calling attention to virtually making a fetish of the game's noble equality. Equality, that is, of opportunity. Everyone is given exactly the same chance and the opportunity to exercise that chance. What could be more generous than to give everyone all those opportunities? And with each turn at the plate, there's the possibility of turning the situation to your favor, down to the very last try. And then, to ensure that everything remains fair, justices arranged around the park to witness and assess the play. And if the justice errs, an appeal can be made. It's invariably turned down, but that's part of what makes the metaphor so right. Because even in the most well-meant of systems, error is inevitable. Even within the fairest of paradigms, unfairness will creep in. And baseball is better than democracy, or at least the democracy as it's practiced in this country, because unlike democracy, baseball acknowledges loss. While conservatives tell you, leave things alone and no one will lose, and liberals tell you, interfere a lot and no one will lose, baseball says, someone will lose. Not only says it, insists upon it. So that baseball achieves the tragic vision democracy evades. Evades and embodies. Democracy is lovely, but baseball's more mature. Another thing I like is the home run trot. Not the mad dash around the bases when it's an inside the ballpark home run. Not sure I've ever seen an inside the ballpark home run. I'm talking about that graceful little canter when the ball has been crushed and it's missing and the outcome's not in doubt. What I like about it is it's so unnecessary. The ball's gone. No one's going to bring it back. And can anyone doubt that a man capable of launching a ball 400 feet is somehow going to fail to touch a base when he's running uninterfered with? For all intents and purposes, the game at that moment is not being played. If duration of game is an issue, and I'm given to believe that duration of game is an issue, the sensible thing would be to say, yes, that's gone, add a point to the score, send the next batter to the plate. But that's not what happens. Instead, play is suspended for a celebration. A man rounds four bases, and if he's with the home team, the crowd has a catharsis. And from the way he runs, you learn something about the man. And from the way they cheer, you learn something about the crowd. And I like this, because I don't believe in God. Or, well, I don't know about God or about any of that metaphysical murk. Yet I like to believe that something about being human is good. And I think what's best about us is manifested in our desire to show respect for one another, for what we can be. And that's what we do in our ceremonies, isn't it? Honor ourselves as we pass through time. And it seems to me that to conduct this ceremony not before a game or after a game, but in the very heart of a game is 
quite... Well, does any other game do that? That's baseball. Seasons cycle moving round and round Pushing life up from the cold dead ground It's rolling green kids were in middle school, I always told them, if you're enjoying middle school, you're doing it wrong. Middle school is a fraught time where your body and your mind are undergoing radical changes. Weird clumps of hair are springing up everywhere, your voice is changing, and the feelings of attraction and revulsion run strong. As Bernie Toppin would write about Benny and the Jets, 
Oh, but they're weird and they're wonderful. It's the time of life when big boys and girls become little women and men. My mother chose to teach and serve as a principal at a middle school. When I asked her why she'd ever volunteer for such a thing, she told me that middle school is a turning point for a lot of kids. It's a time of life when they make choices that affect them for years and often for the rest of their lives. I'm thrilled to share with you three middle schoolers who seem to be making pretty good choices so far. I ask them the same questions we're exploring all year. What's on your mind? What's your favorite meal? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your fondest memory? And what are your hopes for the future? These are the seasons of life. My name is Seth, and I'm 12 years old. My name is Charlie, and I'm 12 years old. My name is Wyatt, and I'm 12 years old. What's on my mind, I guess, kind of, is just probably school. In school, we're working on a project in science where we, uh, we're studying the human body systems, and we get into groups of, like, five or six, and we each get our, um, like, designated system, and we get to make giant posters on it. And I'm in the nervous system group. So we got a giant piece of paper and I got traced on it. And then we like drew all the nerves and stuff in it. And like, we're going to present those in a, about a month. Right now, my mind is just, just wants me to eat food. I haven't eaten all day. So mostly it's kind of just school. Um, I mean, like my grades, my friends, and just like learning. Best meal I ever had was probably when I tried beef flavored ramen for the first time. I was like, oh man, I should have been eating this at the start. So it was actually on a camp out. Um, and I feel like it was called a filet mignon. And uh, it had like really tender steak and it was really good. I can picture the restaurant in my head, but I don't know where exactly it was. And um, it was on like, an ocean view and I got calamari. I think that was the first time I had gotten calamari and I loved it. And it was like one of the best calamari uh, calamari I've ever had. And it was really good. I like sleeping. My friends make me really happy. That's kind of a basic answer, but just being around them makes me feel like good. Animals. That's what it is. I like working out. I really like music. I play guitar and I love singing. Friends and tv i really like doing art and stuff i have oil pastels that i make um i think are pretty cool pretty much ever since i was born i was so attached to animals like the maybe fifth thing i've ever seen was my dog he's 16 years old right now so he's old like a year ago we had to remove one of his eyes because that eye was pretty much just dead. It was just causing him pain. So he took it out. Now he's just our one-eyed dog. It's a little cyclops. Yeah, he's been my pal since I was born. What I mostly feel sad is if I do something bad because I have pretty bad anger problems. And, like, I'll do something mean and then I'll feel really guilty about it afterwards. I mean, when I, like, fail, like, a, a quiz or a test... When we lose, like, a sports game or something. And, like, you know, when I get hurt. 
I was really sad when my grandparents' dog died. I've been really attached to that dog. I've also known him my entire life, and when he died, it was made me sad. I get mad during arguments. They get me frustrated. I get really frustrated about chewing. I don't know why, but it's like my biggest pet peeve when I can hear people chewing. Something that makes me mad is just... This sounds kind of ironic, but I'm not a kid's person, even though I'm a child myself. I am not a big kid's fan because my history of with kids has been eh. Um, wasps. I hate wasps. Uh, my sister makes me really frustrated because she um likes to accuse me of things. Like, if something of hers is misplaced, she'd be like, Charlie, I know you took it. Like, give it back. And I'll be like, I didn't take it. Well, one of my lifetime enemies who kicked me in the eye when I was, when we were in, like, kindergarten, I got super pissed when, like, he tried to push me down the bleachers. I'm scared of the ocean. Well, I'm afraid of what's in the ocean. Like, I'm fine with, like, going to the beach, but, like, if I'm, like, stranded, being in the ocean alone, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that scares me that I haven't even seen. There's, like, sharks. There's, uh, like, those, like, really huge squid. Heights. Usually when I'm very high up, my mind starts racing and starts thinking about what could happen. Even though my to myself, I'm like, that's not going to happen. And then my mind is like, oh, it might. It might. Oh, I might fall. Two, I might fall and land the wrong way. And I've never broken a bone, gladly. And I'm trying not to. I cannot stand any type of crawly insect. Um, even like ants like they don't necessarily scare me i just don't like touching them or being around them the only type of bugs that don't scare me are praying mantises i can hold praying mantises i love praying mantises they're really cool and they're like the only bug that i can actually be around because i think bugs are really cool i'm just like deathly afraid of them and i wish i wasn't but i can't help it and they scared the life out of me <laughs> let's see let me go down memory lane really quick I'd say it would be the first time I got a dirt bike. I would ride around on that a lot, and I loved it. Just letting the wind... Like, that, th that thing went pretty fast. I think my seventh birthday, it was, a, like, gross theme. So uh, I had, like, a brain birthday cake. Uh, I It was, like, some finger crackers and... There was like this mystery boxes that had like cauliflower with ketchup on it. And when you felt it, you'd have to guess, guess what it is. Kind of just a more recent one is my school dances. Because now that I'm in middle school, we've had like two school dances this year so far. And I just like go, I like going and getting dressed up because I like doing makeup and stuff. And I like going with my friends and like singing and dancing and just having fun and eating food. I mean, I'm hoping to have a successful life, like being able to have like a good house and good family. For my personal life, I hope that I'm successful and don't have to struggle with money or anything like that. I hope I have a good home and a good partner. I don't know if I want kids or not, but I would hope I have cats. 
And I hope my grades are good. I hope we try to figure out global warming and like also world hunger. Then for just like the general world outside of my own little life, I would hope that people just like in general get nicer because like the way the world is right now just kind of sucks. Like, have you heard about the, sh- the school shooting that happened recently? Stuff like that. Um, or like the war, the war going on with uh, Russia and Ukraine. Just like people just need to be nicer and just get along with each other. For myself, I would like to be a marine biologist. Ever since my I was little, my mom would ask me what my dream job is. And once I figured out what marine biology is, I was like, that. It's been the same for like years now. I love going into the ocean. I love marine life. I love everything. I also really want to discover a new marine animal. because. Like, 5% of our ocean has been discovered. Only 5%. So, like, I hope I raise, I hope I get to raise that percentage. Wyatt came to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Charlie lives in Chico, California. And Seth is from St. Louis, Missouri. I hope it was nice to remember school dances, riding bikes, working out, and your first filet mignon cooked over an open fire. And I hope you'll do your best to do your part, to be an example of kindness in this world. The kids are counting on us. I learned a new word this month. Solar punk. It's like steampunk. But instead of looking to the past for inspiration, solar punk looks to the future. This is an excerpt from a solar punk short story called Sunshine State by Adam Flynn and Andrew Dana Hudson. Ramses was in Galveston when she first heard about the myth. It was early May and unseasonably hot, whatever that meant. Out beyond the thin sliver that remained of the island, iron-dark clouds gathered every morning on the horizon. Ominous, an omen, even. Signs of tribulations to come. That's the line she gave to the locals. And while they didn't buy it, she stirred superstitions that they didn't know they had. The holdouts were cranky oil men, who would be damned if some no-drill liberal insurance salesman were going to force them out of vacation homes that had been in their families for generations. Ramza started with a clear statement of her purpose, and then let them rant. She nodded, gravely, and raised her warm beard to toast their wittier insights. They felt heard. She really sympathized with their concerns, but weren't the bedbugs back this year, she asked. And for dramatic effect, she dug into her armpit with her index finger and pulled out a plump louse. She smeared it bloody on the table. On one hand, she ticked off the cost of extermination, the costs of flood mitigation, the fees to the telcos to maintain coverage, the rescue fines she knew for a fact the state would pass next year. How long would Congress really force the insurance companies, her employers, to honor policies on doomed towns? They were underwater already. They just didn't know it. And Tennessee was really nice these days. Rains were good and kept the lakes full for boating and fishing and swimming. A housing boom was surely coming, with a pretty penny in it for anyone who would get in on the ground floor. Then, Ramses swigged the last of her beer and gave them a long, even look. 
one she'd perfected negotiating with the old, patient, Pashtun warlords. The look was about making herself a mirror. Admit it. You know how you'll feel in ten years. That's how they taught it in the Conflict DS special school. Ghost of Christmas future shit. Her earnest sympathies unkinked the secret doubts of those damned by history. The buyout wasn't generous, but they took it. The prophet of the myth who came to her was an old army buddy. Jefferson Jackson, of all people. Not special forces. He'd been paired with her unit to rig up quick and dirty solar at every stop. A cheap way to sweeten the pot for the tribesmen she was trying to talk down. It took some gall to walk into drone-scorched houses and ask to futz with the wiring. Somehow, Jefferson always came back whole and drunk on Pakistani moonshine. A real character, her CO had called him. Sergeant first class of talking people to death. How the fuck are you? Jefferson said, flashing his teeth, some still real at the camera. His redneck drawl, affect, had thickened in the intervening years. He was out of the army now and had found work as a park ranger back home in Florida. Before she could settle into the small talk, he launched into an enthusiastic pitch she could hardly keep up with. She caught Miami, Benson Method, Gators, Something about a big project and a favor she didn't remember owing him. And besides, you sound bored as fuck, he concluded. Ramses hadn't said more than two words, but it wasn't like he was wrong. She rode her musky rental car back to outer Houston and caught a regional jet to Fort Lauderdale. The new runway for big jets floated steady like Emirati Islands. But her dinky hopper had to land bumping and skidding on a shaky platform built on cocked-up shipping containers. The touchdown jarred her, clacking her teeth together painfully. She didn't think she and Miami would get along very well. Jefferson met her at the airport, and they rode out of the city past a stretch of neon-lit nightclubs. Revelers with mosquito nets over their skimpy club gear stood outside, vaping hash and waiting to get in. Jefferson bemoaned the passing of old cowboy-themed swing bars from his misspent youth. They continued west until the nuisance flooding ahead signs became more insistent. Jeff sent the car back, and they continued on in an airboat he'd parked nearby. The jerry-rigged, patched-over beast from the aughts. Jefferson had ripped out the old combustion engine and wired in something Tesla, charged it from a cow-sized solar balloon. Deep into the swamps they rode. The floodlights and the full moon cast a spectral pallor on the water and the trees. All of a sudden, Ramses wondered if she was about to get murdered. Her body dumped in the water to be pulled out rotting by some U of F pathology grad. Her spine straightened. Situational awareness training rushed back with her macabre fantasy. Everything looked dead and still. Though she knew every inch of the Everglades was alive with something. Jefferson whistled tunelessly. A PTSD-fueled serial killer? The affected speech, the forced teeming, the unnecessary details. Ramses had just about convinced herself to make a run for it, evaluating her options for improvised weapons, when they came upon the strangest structure she had ever seen. Squat, spiraling, and conical, 
The myth looked like old drawings of the Tower of Babel that Ramses had seen paging through her uncle's illustrated Bible as a kid. Except, after being abandoned in the Cambrian explosion of linguistic diversity, the tower had been overgrown by creeper vines, and then resettled by hippies and design geeks. Tall and wide as the Superdome, it was covered in moss and ivy and hanging gardens, here and there sprouting long, sturdy branches that jutted out high over the water. Perched atop was a halo, a pristine Mobius loop of solar mirror, gleaming eerie in the moonlight. Ramses peered through the darkness as the airboat trundled forward, trying to understand the prickly, lumpy shape before her. And then, before she could grok it, they were inside, passing through an archway curtained by banyan roots. Inside, the myth was a set of nested domes, massive arching struts supporting wooden platforms, suspended shipping containers, the occasional rope bridge, a flotilla of colorful houseboats jostled together at water level. Illumination was provided by a hodgepodge of bioluminescent globes and dangling strings of LEDs. Here and there, mirrors the size of city buses would flash a reflection of the starry sky above. Ramses thought she saw tree houses in the rafters. A slight, excited-looking woman clad in coveralls reading Sisyphus light-hauling waved them in to dock with traffic ones that probably wandered off from the airport. What the hell have you brought me to, Jeff? Ramses said as they tied into the flotilla. She found herself thinking of the Dinotopia books she read when she was little, and how real cities had disappointed her for years afterwards. The myth looked like a combination botanical gardens, field laboratory, modern art gallery, and Roman bath. Definitely bizarre, but... It was also the most beautiful thing she had ever seen. Jefferson was fierce-eyed. This here's the artsy megastructure that better save my gators. Ramses got the full story over hibiscus tea from Nina Mitra, the aquitect in coveralls who had waved them in. She was young and turquoise-haired, and she spoke in the sort of clipped phrases one hears when genius aims for intelligibility. We're not Rotterdam, and we're not trying to be, Nina explained. Florida can't build dikes. Rising seas seep right up through the bedrock we're sitting on. It's all limestone and porous as hell. The state has a water control system of pumps and canals, but the real protector has always been the wetlands. They soften the blows from storms. They absorb the water rise. Living organisms can take in a lot of water, and they shift it around into verticalities. It wouldn't go to on its own up into leaves and branches and down into root systems, they can clean it. They can even, with a little help, desalinate it. We're just giving them a boost. Carbon, too, the swamp life took in. Building with it, sequestering it in the soil, water, and vegetation. The Everglades pulled poison out of the air more efficiently than a rainforest. To lose it would be to lose the earth a little lung. Jefferson said that Nina had dropped out of four Ph.D. programs before she found one that would fund her designs. She'd cut her teeth building tree trenches in the floodplains of Bangladesh before the Indian annexation. She moved like a woman who wanted glasses to fidget with, but walking around the interior of the myth, she pointed out the most minute plants, insects, and algae strains, all with an explanation of how they fit into the boutique ecosystem they had created. 
Ramses got the impression that the mousy radical had much better eyesight than the rest of them. The plan was like the Manhattan Project of permaculture. With the weather changing faster every day, wetlands all over the world were dying of lost insects, being stripped by hurricane winds or withering from rising salinity. So the myth aimed to create a new wetland. Through rapid testing and genetic tweaks, the Aquatex team of ecosystem hackers was honing in on a combination of swamp grasses, oysters, and thick tropical trees that they believed would turn the sputtering Everglades into an overclocked engine of carbon sequestration, desalination, water filtration, flood mitigation, and topsoil retention. A total package of environmental redemption. With giant watercolor flowcharts, they mapped the passage of carbon, nitrates, and methane gas through their synth bio-proving ground. Drop in the right algae bloom, and pH levels would slowly stabilize. Prod the microbiome into a different shape, and the new wetland would stop releasing methane. Swap a gene, and the mangroves would snake up any man-made support struts. They dragged in hulking beams salvaged from abandoned shipyard cranes and Disney World's roller coaster boneyard. 200 feet high, they coaxed the swamp, wispy trees aching to touch a threatening sky. The new wetland not only survived the harsher environs provided by climate change, it positively thrived. It thrived because. This was a crucial point for Nina. The new wetland was made of weeds. No, not like kudzu, she insisted, describing their selective use of Terminator seeds for bad actors. Globalized weeds adapted for a new world. They scattered, adapted, resisted, and survived. And like any good weed, the new wetland wanted to spread. The myth wasn't just their laboratory. It was their working prototype. Nina wanted to take it to scale. That's where you come in, she said to Ramses as they finished their tour. Hacking the Everglades was a project that would take a generation. It required a coalition of committed partners from the surrounding communities. Suburban developers and sprawl salvagers, semi-legal hunters and pseudo-official wildlife enthusiasts like Jefferson. Tour guides business owners, transients, natives. They all had to be sold the unlikely story that southern Florida could be saved. In fact, could be made vital to the planet. The smart money figures the Everglades are doomed and wants to profit off of what comes next. The dumb money refuses to face the facts. Nina shrugged and added, Then there's us. We'd be the weird money, if we had money. But what's with the creepy cult name? Ramses asked finally. The myth? is all the wrong connotations for something I need to sell people on. Nina smiled, embarrassed. I joked that what I really wanted was to build a magnificent temple to the human spirit. Someone on email started abbreviating it, MTHS. From there, pretty soon everyone just called it the myth. Ramses laughed. For all their crazy person talk of hope and optimism, the myth people were still just project dorks. She could live with that. Adam Flynn is the author of Solar Punk, Notes Toward a New Manifesto. And Andrew Dana Hudson is a fellow at the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University.
You can find the full text to Sunshine State in the anthology, Everything Change, an anthology of climate fiction. It's a thrilling, funny piece that, if you ask me, feels like it wants to be expanded into a novel. Just saying. skies for every sea, for our lives, for all we cherish, sing we are joyful song of peace. For the mountains, hills, and silent majesty for the stars for all the heavens sing we are joyful song of peace sing we are joyful song of Remember Mr. T? He was one of the biggest stars of the 1980s. His career started in a competition for bouncers where one of the challenges was to see how far one could throw a little person. Classy. 
He made his screen debut as Clubber Lang, a streetwise and arrogant challenger to Sylvester Stallone's equally ubiquitous fighter character, Rocky Balboa. He then went on to star in the TV series The A-Team, and then there was the Mr. T cartoon, and even a Mr. T breakfast cereal. Mr. T's star faded in the 1990s. He's a traveling preacher now. But in the 80s, he was everywhere, and he was well-known for his catchphrase, first coined in Rocky III. No, I don't hate Balboa, but I pity the fool. It's now a trademarked phrase, and I'm using it here without permission. Mr. T, does the T stand for trademark? He claims pitying the fool is an act of compassion and that it has its origins in the Bible. He says that the words pity and fool appear so often that it was just a matter of putting them together and bam, a catchphrase was born. But if we scroll down just a little bit further down the YouTube search for Pity the Fool, we stumble across this Bobby Blue Bland tune from Someone cries for you. capable of making foolish choices, and it is comforting when people take pity on us rather than punishing us for our mistakes. But in this month of April that starts with the day that celebrates the fool, I want to try to reclaim the archetype from someone whose foolish actions deserve our pity and see if we can take inspiration from and learn to embrace the way of life to which the fool invites us. While the character of the fool fills our literature, film, and TV, may I recommend Dinner for Schmucks, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and SpongeBob SquarePants? The Tarot deck is where I'd like to begin. In a Tarot deck, there are regular cards that are divided into suits, like a deck of playing cards. There are wands, pentacles, swords, and cups, which correspond to clubs, diamonds, spades, and hearts and also represent fire, earth, air, and water. In addition to these regular cards, which are called the minor arcana, there are a whole other set of cards that make up what's called the major arcana. 
These 22 cards represent major life events. Cards like the Lovers, Strength, and the Hermit are fairly straightforward, while others, like the Tower and the Hanged Man, can be a little more cryptic. The interesting thing is that the 22 cards of the Major Arcana are numbered from 1 to 21. You heard me right, 22 cards numbered from 1 to 21. The card of the Fool lives both within and outside of the Major Arcana because the number assigned to it is zero. At first, this might very much feel like a less-than proposition until you recognize and accept the true power of zero as an epic multiplier. When my kids were in first grade, zero was introduced as the hero of the school year. Zero the hero showed up every 10 days to great fanfare. And on the hundredth day of school, there was an epic celebration of the power of zero to multiply any number by 10 all the way to infinity. Cheerios and donuts for all. I could go on and on about how zero lives both within and outside the numerical system as it represents both nothing and infinity all at once. But I'll just let the great Bob Doro take it from here. Place one zero after any number and you've multiplied that number by ten. See how easy that is. Place two zeros after any number and you've multiplied that number by 100. See how simple that is. Place three zeros after any number and you've multiplied that number by 1,000. Etc. Etc. Ad infinitum. Ad astra. Forever and ever. With zero. My hero. How wonderful you are. The shape of zero is the shape of the infinite loop. It has no beginning and no end. It just goes round and round forever, like our Earth spins forever on its axis and circles the great ball of fire that is our sun, which is part of a spinning universe that runs on both the concept and the image of zero. Zero is the ring you put on the finger of your beloved to dedicate yourself to them for all time. Zero is the symbol of new life we see in the eggs that decorate our Seder feasts and our Easter celebrations. Zero is the shape of the atom, which holds within its tiny circumference the power to release extraordinary amounts of energy that can be harnessed to both productive and destructive ends. You would do well to ponder the power of zero. You'd be a fool not to. <laughs> Which brings us back to our old friend, the fool. If we take a look at the image of the fool as represented on the traditional tarot deck, we see a pleasant-looking youth hiking along, carrying a little rucksack over their shoulder. They're dressed in very colorful clothing. You might call them a bit of a dandy. They hold a flower in one hand, and they're basking in the warm sun as they trot along the trail, completely unaware that they are about to step right off the edge of a cliff. Fortunately, they brought their dog along with them, and we see the little canine yapping at the youth's heels to warn them to pay attention and look where they're going. The image shows no indication of how the situation might turn out. Will the fool plummet to their demise? 
Or will the dog snap them out of their reverie just in the nick of time? Let's pause here for a little quiz. In this description of the Fool card of the tarot deck, do you see an image of an idiot who is completely unprepared for the journey at hand, who's one step away from disaster? Or is it a picture of a charming and colorful youngster reveling in the journey of life without a care in the world? Are they a free spirit or a freeloader? Does the image bring you joy, terror, or rage? For the fool will challenge our assumptions in many ways. The fool will throw themselves into experiences and projects and travel without a care in the world. And if things don't go as planned, they're apt to simply laugh it off and try something else. <laughs> but don't be fooled. The fool is learning from these mistakes and missteps and failures. They're gaining experience and experiences that will inform their next adventure. And over time, the fool will transform into the archetype of the sage, whose life has grown rich from a multitude of experiences, while those who play it safe, who are often called foolish fools and who might be deserving of our pity, will never dare to take a chance and will instead embrace well-worn systems of conformity and orthodoxy. <laughs> the wise fool lets their mistakes go and learns from them. The foolish fool holds on and defines themselves and others by them. The wise fool persists. The foolish fool gives up. The wise fool challenges assumptions. The foolish fool embraces them. The wise fool welcomes, the foolish fool excludes. You ever hear how Bono and Paul McCartney write their lyrics? They just start singing, mumbling nonsense syllables until the words of the song start to take shape. They stumble toward their songs with trust, knowing that something will come up eventually and that infinite failures are all part of the process. Tony Hawk decided he wanted to be a professional skateboarder. How foolish is that? But every wipeout, every bruise and broken bone he experienced along the way did not deter him. Instead, they were embraced as an integral part of the process of achieving the goal. In April, many of us take a holiday to revere a couple of super fools who took ridiculously huge chances in their lives. Moses, a stuttering slave, had to go against every instinct in his being to be foolish enough to stand before Egypt's pharaoh and demand that they let my people go. Jesus preached that the meek and the peacemakers and the poor in spirit are the ones who are truly blessed. He also told stories about fishermen and quarreling siblings and sowers of seeds, and he palled around with working stiffs, prostitutes, tax collectors, turning water into wine to keep the party going. Like Moses before him, he also faced grave doubts about his mission, but persisted nonetheless and used his last breath to take pity on the foolish fools who knew not what they were doing. Mahatma Gandhi advocated for a nonviolent army that would fight with soul power 
meaning they would be willing to calmly endure abuse without fighting back in order to expose the corruption of the foolish fools in power. Dr. Martin Luther King picked up on this idea of nonviolent resistance. Both transformed the world with their soulful foolishness, and both, just like Jesus before them, had their lives taken away. And that's the challenge of the fool. They're not here to simply entertain you like the clown, or to carefully tease and then turn around and kiss the ass of the powerful as the court jester does. The path of the fool, the path that surely leads to setbacks and failures, but ultimately leads to wisdom and growth, is the path of the power of zero. It doesn't look like anything until you realize that zero is the most powerful and transformational force in the universe. Zero is the path of new life we see in an egg that can become a flock of chickens or an entire planet full of people. Zero is the power contained in an atom to unleash an extraordinary amount of energy. Zero, and by extension, the fool, point us to the humbling potentiality of infinity that exists all around us and within us. The fool invites us to harness that potential with joy in our heart, a spring in our step, and a song on our lips. And that's April. No fooling. Drop us a line and let us know what you're planting in your literal and metaphorical gardens. We're at livefromthelounge640 at gmail.com, and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll take a minute to head over to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com. Hit the donate button and make a contribution of any size to help keep this show coming to you season after season. Here's the Who Did What. Our podcast is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. They performed with John Ballinger, who arranged Season Cycle and Blue Green Hills of Earth. Ruby Farley joined me in reading an excerpt from Sunshine State by Adam Flynn and Andrew Dana Hudson. Charles Dayton provided the sound design for The Big Question. And I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. <laughs>